Would you please stand with me for the reading of the word? Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. James 1, through 25. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Alyssa. Well, I'm so grateful to be able to preach uh, every single time, just so grateful to be able to have the privilege to share with you, Um, and I hope that you're uh, grateful to hear me every time, but I understand that probably some of you may not be, but I'm grateful all the same. Um, Just a a fair warning for you uh, this morning. Um, Yesterday, uh, my dad and I, early in the morning, we went yard sailing, and I was able to find an espresso machine for like 10 bucks. So I've had a couple of shots of espresso this morning. Um, so if I get a little excited, it's either the espresso, the Holy Spirit, or both. So I hope you're ready to have an energetic sermon this morning, because um, that's probably what you're going to get. Um, throughout the past few weeks, we've been going through this sermon series entitled Refuel to be Revived. And we've been looking at the first chapter of James. And we talked about how we must ask for God's wisdom so we can close the gap in our life, and it's in closing that gap, that's where revival is found. And we've talked about the importance of spending time with God, seeking out uh, wisdom in his word. Um, Last week we talked about how important it is to be slow to speak and and slow to anger and quick to listen. Many of you last week walked out with those those cards and we saw that you had taped those on your refrigerators, you taped them on your computers. I think that some of you may have even taped them on your children's foreheads, just to remind you to be slow to anger. Right? And if you need any more of those, there's some more out there. If you just need a couple more reminders. Um, this week we're going to be continuing on uh, right where Pastor Brian left off uh, last week. We're going to be in the first chapter of James. And Alyssa read it for us this morning. So if you want to go ahead and flip there or scroll there or type there, that's where we're going to be. James one, chapter 1, uh, verses 22 through 25. And it's also going to be on the screen this morning. So let's go ahead and read. James uh, verse uh, 22 through 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they heard but doing it, they will be blessed In all, they do. James told us to ask for the wisdom of God. He told us to listen for God's voice and his direction. But now James gives us the most important command of all. He says, now it's time to do it. James says it's not good enough to simply be an asker. It's not good enough to simply be a listener. You have to be a doer. I think that one of the biggest issues that we find and that we can all probably observe in the modern day church is that we've gotten to be really, really, really good listeners. We listen in in church on Sundays, we listen in Sunday school, in small group, but so many times we forget the most important part. We have to follow through and do what we heard. A few of the staff went to a preaching conference um, with Pastor Scott Daniels, and it's there he told a parable that went a little bit like this. Um, There was a duck community, 
and there were plumber ducks and lawyer ducks and, and teacher ducks, all different uh, types and occupations of ducks. And every morning they would wake up and they would uh, waddle out of bed and they'd waddle into the shower and get ready for work and they'd waddle the kids off to school, they'd waddle to work, do their nine to five, then they would waddle to the grocery store, they'd waddle to pick up their kids from school. Then on Sundays they would waddle to church, they would waddle down the aisle and waddle into their pew and then the pastor duck would waddle out onto the platform and he'd begin to preach. And his sermon sounded a little bit like this. It was, listen, if we just spread our wings and fly, we can soar over the earth and we can see life from a new perspective. And all you have to do is ask God and his Holy Spirit to give you the wings to fly. And you can fly. And God will help you to fly. And we can all, each and every one of us, God can enable us to fly. And the ducks, they'd pull out their little duck hankies and wave them around. And they, they would quack their duck amens. And then after the service, all the ducks would stand up waddle out of their pews, and waddle home. And every time I hear that parable, I think of how much that is just kind of a true reflection of a lot of the times we see the church. So many modern Christians, they waddle to church every week after week after week. They're, they listen to Sunday school in Sunday school and in small group in the sermons, how they're told that they can fly with God's help. But each and every day, they, we continue to simply waddle home. And I want to look back at this picture. We've been looking at it um, every week. We've talked about how this light, it represents where God is calling us. He's the wisdom to which he's revealed, what we know, where we know God wants us to be in our spiritual life. And that's what that light represents, that end point that says no. That's where God's revealing to us. But so many times we fail to measure up to where God is calling us and we live farther down that line, down at that first dot where it says live. And what's in between where we are living and where we know we should be because God's revealed that to us is what we call the gap. The gap. And, that's, and it's when we close that gap, when God helps us to close that gap, is where we can find revival. That's where change is wrought by the Holy Spirit. That's where transformation is found. That's where breakthroughs are found, is in the closing of that gap. And in James chapter 1, James gives us a few hints on how we're able to close that gap, and that's kind of what we've been talking about throughout the past few weeks. And I have one more graphic to show you that kind of sums up what James is telling us in James chapter one. He says, first, you have to ask. You have to ask God, God, where are you calling me? Where do you want me to be? What's the next step that you want me to take? Where is your light shining on my life? Where am I to live? And then we have to listen. We have to spend time in silence, spend time in his word to listen, to figure out what he's telling us, where he's calling us. But then this final part of the cycle, what we're gonna be talking about today, is that we have to do it. We have to list, ask for his direction, listen for it, and then we do it. And it's by continuing through this cycle over and over again throughout our entire Christian life, it never ends, asking, listening, doing. That's how we're constantly where God wants us, in the center of his will, constantly closing the gap in our life. We need to ask and then listen and do. But so many times this cycle is broken at the most crucial part. It's broken at the doing. We never follow through and actually do. And I think there's a misconception that can develop. And it's this misconception that, you know, if I just go to church every Sunday and I attend Wednesday night small group and I go to Sunday school, by, by doing those activities, that gap will kind of close in my life. And that's a misconception in the way that what James is telling us today and what God is speaking to us today is that we have a part to play. 
We have a part to play in the closing the gap. If you want to experience revival, if you want to experience a breakthrough, if you want to experience transformation, it begins by your doing and the Holy Spirit's moving. Let me say it again. It begins by your doing and the Holy Spirit's moving. If you want a breakthrough in your life, you want to experience revival and close that gap, it requ- God requires that we take the first spe- step so that his Holy Spirit can move and transform our life. The closing of this gap isn't just God doing it, but it's actually a partnership. We have a part to play. It's when you do something and God comes alongside of you and says, let me help you close that gap. If you want God to do a new thing in your heart, you have to do a new thing. You might be asking me, well, what am I to do? You're saying I have to do something to close this gap. I have to take the first step. What am I supposed to do? And I think that in order to answer that question, we have to name the gap. We have to pray that God would help us to name that gap in our life. God, what is it that's keeping me from where you want me to be? And I think that would give us a hint as to what we are to do. And so I'm gonna give us a few names of what that gap might be. And in order to do that, we're gonna be looking in John 5. So if you wanna go ahead and flip there, we're gonna take a break from James for a second and go to John chapter 5. And it's here we find a man who not only had, he not only experienced a a spiritual gap, but he experienced a physical gap. So join me in John chapter five. It's here that we find Jesus, and scripture tells us that Jesus is going to Jerusalem for a festival, because Jesus liked Ferris wheels and funnel cakes just as much as the next guy. So he went to Jerusalem for this festival. So begin reading with me in John chapter five. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Verse three says this. Here a great number of people used to lie, and this is by the sheep gate Bethesda, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, pick up, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And now skip down to verse 14. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. We find out from this last verse that we read that that, that this man had a spiritual gap in his life that was a result of his sin but he also had a physical gap that he was unable to close. This man was physically disabled and he laid out by that pool of Bethesda day in and day out. And and maybe if you look in the footnotes of your Bible, you'll see that one of the verses has been removed in some translations and that's because it's believed it was added a a little bit later on to add context to the verse. But what you'll read there is that it's believed that this pool where the man was laying, whenever the water would ripple, it was believed that it was an angel that was coming and touching the pool and, and, and the legend went that if you were the first one to hop into the pool when the water was stirred, you'd be healed. It was a superstition. It, it was an urban legend, but the people in Jerusalem believed it. So they would lay by this pool just waiting for the water to stir, hoping to be the first one to hop in. And that's where this man spent most of, most of his life just laying on his mat, hoping to be the first one in. But that gap between his mat and the pool might as well have been 10 miles long because he had no one to help him into the water. 
I think that gap between his mat and the pool kind of mirrored the gap that he had in his heart between where he was living and where he, God had called him to live. But aren't you glad that it was right there in the midst of that gap that Jesus stepped on to the scene? To the man who was lying on his mat in Bethesda, and for us today, the gap in his heart had many different names. I think one of the names that the gap in his heart had was the gap of complacency. The gap of complacency. Look at verse 3. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? The man had been an invalid for 38 years. I think that most of them were probably spent laying outside that pool in Bethesda, day in, day out, waiting for the water to stir. And I can only imagine that the man had began to grow complacent right where he is. He began to grow comfortable right on that mat. And if you don't believe me, I think I can probably provide you with some evidence. Notice that this is one of the few miracles in the Bible where Jesus approaches the man and asks him if he wants to be well, rather than the man approaching Jesus or calling out to him. In most miracles, it's someone calling out to Jesus, reaching out to Jesus, going to Jesus, asking for healing. But in this instance, Jesus had to go to the man. Why did, why did the man not cry out to Jesus? I think it's because he was kind of complacent right where he was. And I love the question that Jesus asks him. Jesus goes up to his, him and says, do you want to get well? He asks him, well, don't you want to get well? Or are you kind of okay where you are? Are you content with that gap that spans your heart? Because it seems like you've grown complacent and comfortable right where you are. But don't let me stop you. I just have one question. Do you want to get well? And I think that Christ is extending the same question to those of us who have grown complacent. And if you look at this cycle, you see that sometimes we're asking and we're listening, but complacency is keeping us from actually doing. It's keeping us from acting on that which God is calling us. I want to go back to the flashlight diagram one more time, and I hope I'm not like overwhelming you with diagrams. I hope you're following along. But I want to go back to this flashlight diagram. I think that many times whenever we grow comfortable and complacent in our spiritual lives, when we kind of just get into a groove and you say, okay, I feel like I'm at a pretty good point in my spiritual life, and we kind of ride it out, I think that many times we feel like our spiritual life is just going to level out. I think many times we feel like it's going to be like this dotted line. This is where I'm living, and it just kind of levels out, and that's kind of where I'm going to stay. But I think that many times we don't realize it, but it actually looks more like this second diagram. That when we grow complacent and we grow comfortable, our spiritual lives don't just level out, but instead they quickly begin to decline. They begin to deteriorate. Your relationship with God is just like any other relationship in the way that if you neglect to do anything on your side of the relationship, it won't stay the same, but instead it will quickly deteriorate. If you're not doing something on your side, you're actually undoing it. You have to do something. In my relationship with my wife, Annie, if I had grown complacent right where I am and just grown complacent and comfortable on the couch and never helped her with the dishes or with the laundry, and she's probably thinking, well, he doesn't help now, but if I didn't help with the dishes or with the laundry, if I never gave her words of affirmation, if I never gave her a hug when she came home from work and I just kind of sat around and grew complacent where I was, would our relationship stay the same? Probably not. It would probably quickly deteriorate. Or, or for instance, <clears throat> now that Amy and Annie have been married for about a year and a, and a few months, I've noticed that I've kind of gained a little weight. 
And so I've been, um, I've been trying to wake up early every single, every single day and go to the gym and try to lose some weight. And I've lost, I've lost like 15 pounds. And, and it's easy whenever you hear that, like, okay, when you look at the scale, you know, 15 pounds, that's, that's nothing to blow your nose. And I think I'm just going to kind of just kind of chill out for a while. I'm going to sleep in. I'm going to stop going to the gym. I'm going to kind of start eating the way I used to. I mean, I lost 15 pounds. What's going to happen? Quickly, very quickly, probably, I'm going to gain that weight right back. Why? Because I grew complacent. Why? Because if you're not doing something, you're undoing it. We need to stop this, this poison of complacency that so easily fills our churches and our Sunday school classes and our small group. Because I think that many times, not only does the devil attack us by tempting us to do something, but I think that sometimes he can attack us, attack us by tempting us not to do something. I think sometimes the devil wants us to be comfortable right where we are. He wants us to grow complacent because he knows that if the, if the enemy can get us to grow complacent in our spiritual walk with Christ, if we're not doing something, we'll be un doing it, but we need to fight against that natural tendency we have just to remain complacent and keep fighting to do something, keep fighting to meet God with where he's calling us. And I get so worked up on this subject, maybe it's the espresso, but I think it's because I've been in the church for such a long time and and I've seen a lot of complacent Christians and I've been a complacent Christian for a few years of my life. That's where I lived. But I think that when we become complacent, we forget why we're here in the first place. We're not here just to get our ticket stamped into heaven. That's not why we come to church. We come here because we believe that our God makes a difference in lives, amen? We're here because we believe that a piece of heaven has come into our lives and our desires, that same piece of heaven, would be injected into our families, would be injected into our workplaces, where we go to school. We believe that Christ makes a difference. That's why we're here. But it's took me so easily to be complacent and forget that because if you're not doing something you're undoing. James is crying out to us, do not merely listen to the word and so do you deceive yourself. Do what it says. And Jesus is crying out to us and he's saying, don't you want to be well? Aren't you tired of just remaining where you are? Aren't you sick of, of remaining stagnant? Jesus is saying we need to stop being complacent. Do something to close that gap. Not only did I think this man struggled with complacency, But I think that he also had the gap of circumstance. Look at verse six. Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. And he asked him, don't do you want to get well? Sir, the invaluer replied, "I, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And so Jesus asked the man this vital question, don't you, don't you want to be well? And notice the man doesn't say yes. The man doesn't say, of course I want to be well. I've been here for 38 years. What does, he, what does he immediately respond with? An excuse. He immediately responds by saying, there's no one here to help me get into the well. He listened. He asked, but he didn't do. His circumstance cut him off from the doing part of that cycle, and instead he gave an excuse. And many times we do much of the same. I think that God sheds his light on a gap in our lives, he's saying, this is where you're living and this is where I'm calling you to go. This is what I want you to live like. This is how I want you to be. This is how you can look more like Christ. And many times what keeps us from spanning that gap and going to where he's calling us is a giant excuse that lays in the middle. Well, God, I'm just, I'm just so stressed out at work. I've been busy. God, I'm, just, I'm under a lot of stress right now from a lot of different 
different areas, or, or God, I just need to wait till I get my financials in order, or I just need to wait for the kids to get back in school, and we get back in a routine, and on and on and on, excuse after excuse, and I'm guilty of it, and we can all say we're probably guilty of it. We've all done it one time or another, giving God an excuse rather than doing. We're too busy, we're too stressed, too unstable to nourish our relationship with God and close the gap. But the truth is that when it comes to these excuses, when we give God an excuse, that's because we're allowing our circumstances to affect our spiritual lives rather than letting our spiritual lives affect our circumstances. Let me say it again. We're allowing our circumstances to affect our spiritual lives rather than letting our spiritual lives affect our circumstances. We say, I can't read my Bible because I'm too busy, rather than saying, I'm going to make my devotion, devotions a priority and allow God to determine my schedule. Or we say, you know, I'm too stressed out to nourish my relationship with God, rather than growing in our relationship with God and allowing him to give us the peace that we need to overcome the stress that we feel. God, I've tried to close this gap, but I'm just chained to this spiritual addiction. I've been in it for a long, long time. I can't get out. Rather than going and seeking God and laying down at his feet and allowing him to provide the strength and the freedom we need, we allow our circumstances to affect our spiritual lives rather than letting our spiritual lives affect our circumstances. God wants to work in the midst of your situation, but he cannot do it unless you do something first. So often we sit back and make excuses about why that gap is not closed. But sometimes we just have to stop make excuse, making excuses and take a leap of faith and just do it. When we begin doing, when we, when we begin nourishing our spiritual lives, when we, when we take care of our spiritual lives, our circumstances are always, always affected. I like the way that Wayne Cordero puts it. This is what he said. When you miss devotions one day, you notice when you miss devotions two days, your spouse and your kids notice. And when you miss for three days, the world notices. Why? Because your spiritual life affects your circumstances and your circumstances affect your spiritual life. But I would also say the opposite. If you take t- the time to spend in devotions and nourish your relationship with God for one day, you'll begin to notice a difference in your circumstances. And if you begin to nourish your spiritual life for two days, your spouse and your kids will probably begin to notice that there's something different. And if you take the time to do it in three days, the world around you will begin to notice that there's something different because you've been allowing your spiritual life to affect your circumstances. I want to illustrate this by telling a story um, about something that's happened in my life before. And one of, the, one of the difficulties about having a dad who's called to the ministry and also being called to the ministry yourself is that many times by the time you get on the stage, all of your greatest illustrations have already been taken. And so I'm going to share an, uh, an illustration that you've probably heard before, but I'm going to tell it from hopefully a new perspective, and um, we'll get through it together. So I was saved in middle school at youth camp, and um, it was the summer, obviously. I was saved at youth camp. God revealed to me where he was calling me. I took a step in faith and closed the gap, and I was ready to continue on in this cycle of asking and listening and doing all the way through my entire life because I was just so ready to seek God in all things. But as with many times when it comes to youth camp, it's, the, the, it's after you leave that kind of reality begins to set in. And you realize that you're maybe not in Kansas anymore and that it's really going to be time to get down to it and do what you said you were going to do. And begin to nourish that relationship with God. And I remember that right after church camp, maybe a couple weekends later, I had a, I had a camp out that was scheduled at a couple of my friends' house. And none of these friends went to church. And so... I went to this camp out, 
we camped out way out in the middle of the woods, and um, we, we were staying up late. It was probably like one or two in the morning, and, and the later it got, the more things that were occurring at that camp out that I knew weren't what God wanted for me. The later it got, the more things that were occurring that I saw that, man, this is where God's calling me. This is the gap that's before me, and, and what's happening over here is not lining up with where he's calling me. And I had two choices in that moment at that camp out is when I saw this gap that was before me and I saw the circumstances that I was sitting in, I could begin to make excuses. I could say, well, God, it's just one time. Or, or God, these are, these are my friends, and, and if, I, if I don't participate, then, then I'm gonna lose them. Or, or, or God, it's, it's just not that big of a deal, excuse after excuse after excuse. Or I could allow my spiritual life, what happened to me at camp, affect my circumstances. And so I made a stand, I said, you know, guys, I gotta go home. And I called my parents, and at one or two in the morning, they came and drove out and picked me up. No questions asked. And, and, and I did lose friends because of it. But the good news is, when I allowed my spiritual life to affect my circumstances, the friends I had knew where I stood on some things. And they knew why I stood the way I stood. They knew the reasons why I left that night, and they knew that God had changed me. And that's why I wasn't participating. It gave me a, a way to witness to them that I didn't have before because I allowed my spiritual life to affect my circumstances. I'm not saying that to say look at me because each and every one of us affects different circumstances every single day that may not line up with where God is calling us. But we have a choice. Are we gonna allow our circumstances to affect our spiritual life or allow our spiritual life to begin to affect our circumstances? Not only did the disabled man in John 5 have an issue with complacency and with his circumstances, but he also had to face a gap named fear. Look at verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me to the pool and when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And I love what Jesus does here because he kind of speaks the impossible over this man. He, he's a disabled man who hasn't walked in 38 years and Jesus simply says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And it's, 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 it's when Jesus speaks those words that the man is healed and he does just as Jesus says. I think this is the first gap in this story that the man seems just to hop right over. It's no issue for him, but it may be an issue for us. If you were laying on a mat for 38 years and, and some stranger told you to get up and pick up your mat and walk, I'd imagine that I'd probably be filled with a little bit of fear. There's a whole lot of unknown there and a lot of doubt. I've been here for almost my entire life. What am I supposed to do once I leave? A lot of anxiety might begin to fill me. But that man was faithful and he did just as Jesus said without hesitation. And because of that, he found healing. But I'm wondering today, how many of us has God came to us and say, hey, get up and walk, and yet we're too fearful, too anxiety-filled to even take a step off our mat? I think God may be calling some of us to bigger and better things, outstanding things for his kingdom, yet they are very, very scary things. And with them comes a lot of unknown, and with them comes a lot of doubt and fear. And so we remain where we are for fear of what would happen if we take the first step, if we go to where God is calling us. And so we remain where we are, and the gap begins to form, and the cycle is broken. We ask and we listen, but fear is keeping us from doing it. And when I think about this story, it reminds me of the story of Exodus and, uh, and, and about a leader who, who I always go back to and one of my favorite stories in the Bible and someone I always look on. I consider him my great friend and his name's Moses. 
And he's in the story in Exodus. You know Moses, he led the Israelites out of, out of Egyptian captivity and he, he led them uh, through, through the Red Sea that day and he, he, he takes them to the base of Mount Sinai. He tells the Israelites, he said, stay here, I'm gonna go up on Mount Sinai, I'm gonna talk to God for a little bit, I'll be back soon. And so Moses goes up on the mountain, he talks to God, God gives him the Ten Commandments, the laws to which his people are to live. And Moses goes back down the mountain, but what he didn't know is that while he was up there, his second-hand man, Aaron, had begun collecting jewelry from all the Israelites and earrings and gold bracelets, and they melted it down, made a calf, and they were worshiping it while Moses was gone. And so Moses comes down off the mountain and he sees these people that he's supposed to be leading and they're worshiping an idol. Already, we haven't even got taken the first step and already we've failed to do what God is calling us. And so Moses throws down the tablets and they, and they break on the ground and he's so distressed and he's so angry. And then God, said, God comes to him and he says, hey, these are the people I want you to lead. He's like, I, t- I want you to take these people and lead them to the land that I've promised. And immediately Moses, he's kind of freaking out a little bit. He's like, God, are you seeing what they're doing? Like, I can't lead these people. They're impossible to lead. We were up there on the mountain and already they failed to live up to the standard which you're calling me. How am I supposed to lead these people? And if Moses wasn't careful, fear and anxiety and the difficulties of his situation were gonna cause a gap to form between where God was calling him to the promised land to lead these people and where he was standing at the base of Mount Sinai. But listen to how the Lord responds to him. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. God, if your presence does not go with us, don't even send us. Moses is saying, I'll fulfill the call, I'll do what you're saying, but the only way that I can do it, the only way I can take a step off the mat I found myself at the base of Mount Sinai, the only way I can take that first step in doing what you've called me to do is if your presence goes with me. I need your help. Because so many times fears begins to create that gap in our life and anxiety and the unknown and the doubts and the fears that we have, and it can keep us from following God, but the only way that we can take that step to close that gap, to get past the fear, is by remembering that where God calls, his presence goes also. Where God is calling you, his presence will go also. Because God will never call you somewhere where his presence is not right there by you, you, providing you help and providing the strength that you need and providing you the words to say. The only way the invalid was able to get up off that mat and begin to walk was because Jesus was standing in his presence. And the only way that we can fulfill the call that God has laid on our life that may elicit fear and anxiety is by realizing that his presence is with us. It is the assurance of his presence that will allow us to do what he's calling us to do. Because where God goes, his presence goes also. And as I think about a leader who had to lead like a rambunctious group of people who had a lot of difficulties leading that group and a lot of fears I think about another great, amazing leader who had to lead a very difficult group of people, a very rambunctious group of people, and that's my wife, and she teaches second grade. And last year, it was her first year teaching, and she had a a very, very difficult class last year. Pretty much anything that you can imagine that would make a classroom dynamic difficult, Annie probably had it. She had kids that came from traumatic backgrounds. She had kids with attention deficit disorders, kids with learning disabilities, on and on and on. All these difficult 
kids in Annie's classroom that kind of all added together to make a really difficult situation for her. And, and I, I remember her coming home from school and just telling me how difficult it was. And sometimes she, would, she didn't know what to do, so she'd break down in front of the classroom or, or she'd just go st- so stressed out. And many times she would share with me on, on Sunday night, she's like, I don't know if I can even go to school tomorrow just because I know what I have to face when I get there. But I remember that week after week after week, Annie would continue to go to school and continue to teach this really difficult class. And I remember asking Annie, I remember said, like, what, what keeps you going? Like, on Sunday night, what gets you out of bed in the morning? And she began to share with me, she's like, if you remember, I be- I was, I've been called to be a teacher ever since I was a little girl. I believe that the, that's the calling that God has laid on my life. And I believe that he led me right to the school where I'm teaching now. And I believe that he gave me this classroom as my first class. And the only way that I'm able to get out of bed each morning, the only way that I'm able to take that first step into the classroom is because I believe that God's presence is there. I believe God's grace is working in those kids in my classroom. The only way I'm able to go and face that difficult situation, I love my kids, but they're really difficult to lead. The only way I can do it is because I believe God's presence goes with me. Even though this difficult situation caused a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of doubt in Annie's life, she had to rely on the fact that where God calls, his presence goes also. I think that the final gap that the man had to face was the gap named pride. If you skip down to the end of that section, you'll find verse 14. It says that Jesus was walking around the temple, and he ended up running into this guy that he had just healed just a few verses earlier. And look at what he says. Jesus says to the man, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and he told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. So finally we see here that this man's deformity was a result of his sin. And I don't think what Jesus is saying here that anytime there's sickness, it's because of sin. But I think in this case for the man, Jesus is saying that was the case. The reason that he was crippled by the pool of Bethesda because he had sin in his life, but because of the power of Jesus Christ and the grace of God, not only was the man healed, but his sins were forgiven. Because when Jesus walked in through that sheep gate that day, he not only saw a physically crippled man, but he saw a spiritually crippled man. He saw someone who was desperate and longing for the grace and the spiritual cleansing that only Christ could extend to him. And after he's healed and his sins are forgiven, what does scripture say that the man did? The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. It was Jesus who made him well. He could have so easily told other people that it was the angel from the pool of Bethesda that had eventually healed him. He could have so easily said, well, you know, I just kind of did it on my own. I was able just to stand up and walk that day. But instead, he went to the Jewish leaders and he, t- he admitted his shortcomings. And he said, where I was, I couldn't do it on my own. Left on my own, I was dead to rights, but instead it was Jesus Christ who healed me. It was Jesus who healed me spiritually, and it was Jesus who healed me physically. It had nothing to do with me. It was all entirely Jesus, and that takes humility. And sometimes I wonder if pride spans that gap in our hearts. So often it's pride that pushes us away from the direction that God is calling us. God is calling us to pursue a deeper and richer relationship with him, but many times it's pride that stands in the way and keeps us locked right where 
we are. It's, pride is what keeps breaking this cycle. We ask and we listen, but we're unable to do because pride gets in the way. God says, comes to us and he says, let me impart the wisdom that you need. And pride comes and he says, I know everything. God says, lean on me when things get tough, but pride says, I can do it all on my own. God says, let me provide all that you need, but pride says, I'll figure it out. God says, I'll make a way. Pride says, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and forge your own path. If there, one, if there is one thing that God hates, it's a prideful heart. Just look at the Proverbs. There's proverb after proverb about the dangers of pride in our hearts. Why? Because with a prideful heart, God can do nothing. With a prideful heart, God can do nothing. And I think that the secret to knowing God more and deepening your relationship with him, the secret to closing that gap in our hearts is coming to him and admitting that we absolutely need him in total humility. God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what to say. I don't know where to go. I don't even know what to think. It's with that kind of heart, a heart filled with humility. That's where God does his best work in us. When it comes to the doing, if our gap is named pride, what are we supposed to do? We have to come to God and bow down at his feet and simply admit that we just don't know what we're doing. Admit that we've messed up. Admit that we can't do this on our own and watch as he uses us and speaks to us and begins to help us to close that gap in our lives. A few months ago, Annie's car began to make this squeaking noise. And it's kind of one of those squeaking noises that you kind of turn up the radio just a little bit louder just so you can kind of ignore it because you don't even want to think about what it might be. And so on and on, after week after week, we kind of ignored the squeaking noise until finally I came to my dad and I brought it up to him. And I said, well, you know, it's making this high-pitched squeal. I don't really know what to do about it. And dad said, well, it's probably the brake pads. You probably need to switch, change your brakes, replace those brakes. And I said, okay, okay, all right. And dad said, uh, well, you know, if you do it yourself, you can probably do it for around probably half the price and so in that moment, I begin to think, easy enough, I can do that, I can do that totally. I'll, I'll just watch a YouTube video, I'll kind of figure it out, and, and my pride began to swell up. How hard could it be, right? But the more I thought about it, the more I began to think, there's no way that I can replace those brakes. I don't have a jack to jack up my car, I don't have the tools that I need, and I don't even know anything about cars, let alone how to fix them. I don't even know where the brakes are. How am I supposed to fix them, right? So when dad ha said I needed to, I had a choice, when dad said I need to fix my brakes, I had a choice in that moment. Pride, which says I'll fix them on my own, I'll figure it out, I'll figure out a way to do it. Or humility, where I come to dad and says, I don't know anything about cars. The only thing I know is how to connect my phone to the radio. That's just about it. You gotta help me, right? I don't know anything. Those were the choices I had. And when I admitted to my dad that I knew nothing about cars, when I asked for help, what was his response? I can help you. When I came to him in total humility, what was dad's response? I can help you. Why, because my dad used to work in a body shop and even now he's restoring an, an old truck. My dad knows cars. He knows them inside and out. And I don't even know, I don't know how to replace brakes and I don't need to know, why? Because I know the one who knows everything about cars. All I had to do was approach him with humility, admit I knew nothing, and allow him to help me. So I brought Annie's car to my parents' house, and the whole time my, my dad was showing me how to replace the brakes on, on the right tire, and he showed me how to take off 
the tire thing and, and undo the tire thing and then put the brake thing in the thing and then close it back and put it on the thing and put the tire back on. And, and, I, and so he came around to the second tire and he said, now I want you to do it, right? So we came to the second tire and, and dad came around and he said, I want you to do the second tire. And so I began to undo the second tire and began to, begin to replace the brakes. But even when I was doing it on my own, I knew that my dad was standing right there beside me offering advice, offering guidance, and helping me through the whole thing. From the time I pulled into that garage until the time I left, my dad never left me. He continued to offer me the help that I needed. We had to approach God the same way. I don't know anything about cars. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know how to do this. And when we approach God that same way, admit that we don't know anything, we don't know what we're doing, we need his help, God whispers the same thing into our spirits. He says, I can help you. Don't worry. I'm right here. I can help you. And as we near the end, um, Pastor Nathan's going to come up and he's going to lead us in a closing song. And the altars are going to be open. We've been looking at this man at the, at, the, at the gate of Bethesda and he faced many different gaps that day. In that short interaction with Jesus, there's many names of the different gaps that the man had to get through. But I want to go back to James very quickly. Verse 22. Don't merely listen to the word and so you deceive yourselves. Do what it says. My question this morning is, church, do you want revival? My question this morning is, do you want to experience a revival? Do you want to see 2019 as the year that God revives our church and revives our community, revives our families and our workplaces? Do you want to see God do a new thing in this place? Because if you want revival, we have to stop, we have to stop simply asking, stop only listening, but we actually have to complete the cycle and we have to begin doing something. If we want to see the revival that God has promised us, we have to stop standing by while the gap begins to grow in our hearts, and we have to do something to close it. Our prayer this morning should be, God, help me to name the gap that's in my life. Help me to see what that thing is that's keeping me from where you're calling me. The complacency, the, the circumstances, the fear, the pride, whatever it may be, God, help me name that gap. And I want to close with just this simple illustration. Here I have a light, and this is going to represent the light that we were talking about earlier in that diagram. And it's the light that God is shining, and he's saying, this is where I want you to live. This is the standard to which I'm holding. This is where I'm calling you to be. And the light is shining on Christ because always the direction that God is calling us is to continue to look more and more like Christ. God's saying, this is where I want you to go. That's where I'm calling you. Are you going to do it? But look at the gap that extends between me and where the light is shining. It's a big gap. And many times, I can allow my circumstances to affect it. God, I, I'm just so stressed out right now, I can't, I can't close that gap. Or we can say, God, I have it all figured out, I'll do it on my own, I'll figure it out. Or we can say, God, that, that gap, it looks huge, it looks scary, I don't know if I can span that. Or we can say, you know, I'm just kind of comfortable where I am down here, I don't really want to go up there. Complacency, circumstances, fear, pride. But what God is saying to us today is he's like, I know the gap is big, I know that, I'm, that it looks like it's far away, but this morning, if you want revival, this is what I'm calling you to do today. To close that gap, this is what I'm calling you to do. Just take one step. Because I know that that gap is huge, but today I want you to do something. I just want you to take the first step to close it. 
do something, take the first step, because what happens is when we take that first step to begin to close the gap, it's as if God is carrying us through step after step after step, and before we know it, we're right in line with Christ, and we're right where God is calling us to be. If you want revival this morning, church, it's time to take that first step. Let's pray this morning, and after that, the altars will be open. Dear Heavenly Father, we so desperately want revival, God. We so desperately need revival in this church, God. We need revival in our families, in our circumstances, in in this city, God. There's so much brokenness. We need revival, Lord. And this morning, God, we want to ask you, we want to listen to you, God, but we want to take the first step and we want to do something, Lord. We want to take that first step because we believe when we take the first step, you'll carry us all the way off our mats, all the way to you, and that gap can close and we can experience transformation and breakthroughs and revival. So God, I ask that you would work in our hearts. Help us to name the gap and then enable us to take that first step. Church, if you want revival in your hearts and your families and your workplaces, I ask that you would take the first step of the morning where you meet God at the altars as Nathan sings.